Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 10. And our text this morning comes from verses 5 through 15, and we're considering the second part of the message, Making Ministers. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 5, if you would stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being able to be here today and the great singing that we've heard and just the majesty of who you are and being able to worship you. We pray, Lord, you'd open up your word to us today and help us to understand what you'd have us to know. And, Lord, we are here to worship you as the great king, our great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The beginning of this chapter, we're very much aware of by now, is the calling of the twelve apostles to be ministers of the gospel of Christ. In verse number one, they are disciples, they are learners, they have heard Christ preach and they've observed his manner, they knew what his life was like. And then as we go on here, we find in verse number 2 that for the first time they are called apostles. An apostle means one that's sent. And was, it was Jesus' intention to send these men out on the mission of preaching the gospel. And this is the first mission for them. It's the first time that they would be without him. This is the first time that they would try out what they had learned. And they wouldn't have Jesus to fall back on. He wouldn't be there to turn to and to ask questions. He wouldn't they be there to hold their hands and to help them when they were confronted with difficult issues and strong opposition that would be there. So Jesus would not be personally with them. But as we'll learn a little bit later when we get to verse number 20, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be with them and that he would give them wisdom what they were to say and what they were to do. This first missionary journey was for a twofold purpose. They would preach and they would evangelize the lost, but they would also be in the middle of a, of a training process. Now, obviously, they had learned much from Christ. They were acutely aware that he was the promised Messiah, but they didn't yet have any experience. They, they'd never done this before. Now, the work of God in the heart is a supernatural work change that takes place in you, inside of you when you are regenerated, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you're born again, all of that is a supernatural work that happens on the inside. But God has never intended 
that that work that he begins on the inside should stay as an inward work only. What God intends is that what he's done inwardly would begin to show outwardly. And so it becomes the desire of a born-again Christian to tell others what they've heard, that other people would believe what you have believed, and they would know Christ as you know him. And so you have this desire when you become a follower of Jesus Christ to be his minister. But there's an added dimension that we find with these men because these were not just to be ministers, not just people who, who gave the gospel, but they were also to be instructors, and they were the first instructors of the church. They were to tell other people what Christ told them. And in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul said that they were first in the church. These apostles were first in the church. And what he meant by that is they were the foundation of the church. They're the teachers of doctrine that Christ had given them. And in that sense, they have no successors. The apostles received the faith that was once given by Christ. They received these words that they were to teach other people. That faith that we have that comes from Christ is given one time in the, in the entirety of it, in the, in the comprehension of it. And there's no one that really fills that office of apostleship again. But there is another sense in which the apostles were to be examples for all ministers. The teachings that they uh, received would be passed on to others, and they would begin to preach the gospel to others. They would teach the doctrines of Christ and those things also that the apostles taught later. Other leaders were to carry on, and they were to look at how the apostles did this, and these scriptures are to tell us how this work is to be done. So the intention of Christ here is to send the apostles out alone and to really learn what being in the field is like. Now, you don't know what the field is like until you're thrust into the middle of it. So they are evangelizing, but at the same time, Christ is teaching them and they're learning, they're training to do God's work in God's way. Now, we noticed in in the last message that they were commissioned for this work. And so we spoke of the master's commission. They they were called. And a minister is someone who is is called by God. And, And that's a calling that goes beyond the gospel itself. It is a second specific calling in which God gives the authority and the aptitude for that man to preach. Now, there is a sense in which all have been called to be preachers of the gospel, but there is also a very separate, specific call in which men become leaders and they take the oversight of God's congregation. In the New Testament, you'll find pastors are called bishops, and that word means an overseer. And we notice in verse number 5 that the scripture says that Christ commanded them. That's a military word. It's a word of compulsion so that the one who's commanded doesn't have the option to refuse. It's also a word that means a summons. It's like a a legal summons. So there's a legal obligation to obey this. It's a word that says that it must be done, but it must be done in a specific way. It has to be done in the way instructed. And the command is not obeyed and the task is not completed unless that person that God sends out does it in exactly the way that it's specified. And all of that points up to the authority of the commander. And so a person who becomes this type of minister has a direct appointment from God. 
And then we also noticed last week that the minister has a singular message. It's direct and it's to the point. It doesn't deal with secular concerns. We don't go out and talk to people about the economy. It's not a discussion about the political parties that are in power. And in another place, the Apostle Paul said that his preaching was not done in the words of man's wisdom. So we don't teach man's philosophy. The the gospel's not concerned with mundane affairs of life, what's going on in the everyday life, but the message is simply the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's a message that judgment is coming. Just like the prophet Amos said in the Old Testament, he said, prepare to meet thy God. And the only way that you can ever be prepared to meet the righteous God of this universe is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we go on today to verse number 8. And Jesus says here, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. And this is the minister's compassion. Now let's go back to the first verse of this chapter again. It says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So these men were given the commission to preach, and they were to tell people, God is coming with judgment. But the question is, why should anyone believe what they say? Why, why should anyone believe that judgment is coming? Why do we believe that God's kingdom is coming and that anything is going to change? Peter had that same prospect or faced the same prospect in his second epistle. He wrote, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So how are you going to get people to believe that tomorrow is going to be any different? How will you get them to believe that in six months it's going to be different or in five years it will be different? How can you convince people that any time it's going to be different? I mean, everybody that you meet has experience in the world and they know the world's been going on for thousands of years and things don't seem to be any different. And we know that there are many people that have predicted the end of the world just a couple of months ago. Uh, We had a man who said that Christ was coming back on May 21st and... Uh, he said the world is coming to an end. Why should we believe that the world is coming to an end? And, And you see people on street corners that hold up signs that say, the end is near. And you see Volkswagen buses, old ones with all kinds of decorations and signs on them that say, the end is near and there is impending doom. Why should anyone believe that? The same thing is true when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, When he preached there. He upset all of the religious teachings of those people. Uh, They've been listening to the same things for hundreds of years. And so now when Jesus comes along and says something different, why should they believe him? And I can tell you why they should believe him. Because when he came down from that mountain, immediately he was met by a leper. A man with leprosy. A man who had an incurable disease. I mean, the worst disease that a person could possibly have. Leprosy made a person an outcast. Nobody wants to be near a leper because it was such a contagious disease. So why should they believe that Jesus was telling the truth? Because he healed that leper. And then he healed a man's servant without even seeing that servant. Why should they believe? Because 
Jesus cast out demons from people. He had power in the supernatural world. Why should they believe what he said? Because Jesus had the power to give blind people their sight and to cause deaf people to hear. Now we notice here when he calls the disciples, he gave them power to do the same things that he did. And so when they preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they had the certification for that message. Why should they believe these men? They have no rabbinical training. They've not been to universities. They are, as far as the world would look, fallible, ignorant, unlearned men. Well, Jesus gave them the power to do miracles, and that was the certification that their message came from God. But we ought not to think that Jesus gave them that power simply for that purpose. Jesus gave them power for this because it was his character to be compassionate. And what Jesus did was to give the disciples this kind of power for the physical care of the flesh, the physical care of men's flesh. Now, Jesus was genuinely concerned about the physical problems of the people, and he could have proved his power in in hundreds of different ways. Now, if you'll turn back to Matthew chapter 4 for just a moment, you'll see Jesus in the wilderness, and he was tempted by Satan. And for 40 days, he stayed there in the wilderness without any food. And what did the devil say to him? On verse number 3, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made into bread. In verse number 5, Satan took him up on the pinnacle of the temple to the very highest point of the temple. And he said to him, If thou be the Son of God, then cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. In other words, he said, Jesus, if you'll just throw yourself off of this place, you'll prove that you're the Son of God, because the angels will come, they'll swoop down, they'll pick you up, and you'll never have to worry about touching the ground. Those are things that Jesus could have done if he wanted to prove that he was the Messiah. There were a thousand miracles, many different kinds that Jesus could have chosen. He could have picked up mountains and thrown them into the sea. He could have called down fire from heaven. He could have disappeared before their eyes and then reappeared in another place. But those weren't miracles that Jesus chose to do because he had tremendous compassion on the physical needs of people. He was a man of compassion, and so he wearied himself. He crisscrossed the Sea of Galilee numerous times. He spent all of his days and much of his nights going to people that were sick, afflicted, all kinds of diseases, going to all the towns and villages, nearly wiping out disease among the people. And so when he gave the disciples the power to do these types of miracles, I mean, he could have just as easily proved that they were from God by giving them power to be magicians. He could have said, now here's how you prove that you are really from God. You you make elephants disappear. You make camels literally go through the eye of a sewing needle. You'll have the power to do that. But he didn't do that because he was a man of compassion. And these disciples, the apostles, were to represent him, and so they had to be compassionate as well. Now, today, we can't do those types of miracles. I mean, no matter what faith healers say, they can't do those kinds of miracles. And if it was intended that we could do these kinds of things, then I'd have to ask you, what about the next command? Jesus said, raise the dead. And you don't find faith healers in hospitals because they can't heal people, and you don't find them in the morgue because they can't raise people from the dead. 
But because we can't do those kinds of things today does not mean that the minister of God and all the rest of it shouldn't be people of compassion. I mean, where did you find Jesus? He's always among the poor. Jesus is always among those that are hurting. He's not among people that can make him rich. And so he made sure to tell the apostles this as well. He said, freely ye have received, freely give. And he meant you're not to ask for money to heal anyone. You're, you're, you're never to charge for these services. And the, and the apostles could have made millions doing this. You remember the woman that was in the ninth chapter and she touched Jesus' garment? Same story is told in Mark chapter 5. The woman came up behind Jesus and secretly touched the fringe of his garment while he was passing through the crowd. And Mark records, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. Now there is a woman who was willing to give everything that she had to be healed. In fact, she'd already done that. She had gone to every doctor that she could find. She had spent every penny that she had trying to be healed and never got any better. And how many times would that story have been multiplied all across the land of Israel? And not thinking only of the poor. The poor would have given everything that they had in order that they might be healed. But what about the rich? The rich had much to give and rich people got sick just like poor people did. And they had a lot to give. Jesus, Jesus could have made a lot of money with this. He could have turned those apostles loose, and they could have been rich beyond their wildest dreams. When I was in Kentucky a few weeks ago, I was reading a story about a man who's a multimillionaire. He lives uh, very near to where I lived in Kentucky, and is a man who owns some railroads. And he has thousands and thousands of acres. I mean, just some beautiful, beautiful a land there in the bluegrass area of Kentucky. And he has his own private airport there. He has several jets that are sitting on the runway. He has helicopters. This man also has cancer. And when he discovered that he had cancer, he decided that he was going to do everything he could to beat that. And so he went and he found a doctor that was an expert in the type of cancer that he had. And he gave this woman $250,000 as the first payment. And he said to her... This money will keep coming as long as I'm alive. And when I die, it ends. And so what do you think that woman spends all of her time doing? She's trying to keep that man alive. In the book of Acts, we have the story of a man named Simon the sorcerer. That's in Acts chapter 8. And he saw that the disciples had the power to uh, give the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. And this man wanted that gift. And so he went to the apostles and he offered to pay them for the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, what the apostles had was a gold mine at their fingertips. And Jesus told them, don't you even think about it. Freely you have received, freely give. Now there's a lesson for preachers, and it's a lesson for poor souls that want to enrich some preachers because they think they can be healed. The programming of Christian radio and Christian television today is filled with these thieves that sell all their snake oils and, uh, to heal people. Uh, there's one on television that I've seen that sells miracle spring water. And one that sells, I mean, they sell trinkets and they sell prayer cloths and they rake in millions of dollars by claiming they have the ability to heal people. 
Now, the, the faith healers and the miracle ministries beg for that money, and what do they have? Jets, multi-million dollar estates, they have diamonds, they have cars, and they sell what people think is the gospel and healing, and really all of it's nothing but a gimmick to make those thieving preachers rich. Now, do you see that here? Do you see that in the story that we're reading in Matthew? Jesus is training them for ministry, and he doesn't give them any training like that. He doesn't prepare the apostles for a ministry of greed. Now, what Jesus did was to remove that temptation right up front. He said, you can't charge anything for this. You do this ministry because this is about helping people. This is about being compassionate about people. We care for them. And so you are not going to charge for any of this. And I don't know, he might have had his eye on Judas when he said that. Because, folks, I'll tell you this. It is a Judas that claims that he's a minister of Christ and then makes money off of the gospel. Makes it a a money-making enterprise. A Judas is someone who preys on people and takes every dime that they have and gives them false hope. Now, the difference here is that the apostles had the power to do it. They could have done it. At least they could have offered value for their service. But the faith healers and the religious hucksters, prosperity preachers, they don't have anything to give but a lie. They don't have anything but false hope. And they're worse than a Judas because Judas actually had the power. He could have done it. Now, why did Jesus tell them to do this or not to do it? Why did he say, you can't charge for it? Well, I've already given you some of the reasons, but but you might think about this. The ministry of Jesus was unique. This was different from anything these people had ever seen before. Do you think making money off religion is new? Is that a new thing, that the world has never seen anybody up to this time that ever made money off religion? Now, we know, of course, that Roman Catholicism has been doing that for centuries. Uh, They charge to pray people out of purgatory. Prayers for the dead and prayers for the living always come with a stipend for the priest. And so absolution of sin comes at a price. And if you can't pay that price, then sorry, your your poor soul is going to rot away. And that's one of the main issues that drove Martin Luther out of Roman Catholicism. It was the greed and the corruption. It was unbearable in that system. But we're talking about something here that's much, much older than Roman Catholicism. In the time of Jesus, there were uh, Jewish exorcists, and they claimed that they could cast devils out of people, and they charged for it. You paid the exorcist to have a devil cast out. Now, he couldn't do it. He said that he could, and the people paid them to do it, but they couldn't do it. And so what do you think when those, what those guys thought, what did they think when Jesus came along and, and, and the apostles, Jesus and the apostles did this for free, and they actually could do it? When you get an idea why these people hated them so much, you take away somebody's income, you affect their pocketbook, and you can bet they're going to come after you with a vengeance. And that's because they had no compassion on the people. It was all about how much money can be made off them. And it's not any different today. Religion is a huge money-making enterprise. And that's why they sell rosary beads. That's why they sell Jesus statues. That's why they sell crosses. And they tell people, you need these things because you can't be forgiven of your sins without them. And you need them because you can't be healed without these things. And all it is is bringing in the dough. There is no compassion for the people. But Jesus wasn't like that, and the apostles were not like that. Jesus said, you can't charge for this because we care about them. 
And all you really need to do to see the compassion of Jesus is watch him at the tomb of Lazarus. Remember the story when Lazarus died? Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he saw his sisters weeping, and when he saw his friends weeping over Lazarus' death, the Bible says that Jesus wept. He had compassion. And you look at the number of times that the Scriptures speak of that compassion. In Luke seven thirteen, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. In Mark 1, 41, and Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him. In Mark six thirty four, and Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and he was moved with compassion toward them. In Mark 8, 2, he said, I have compassion on the multitude. And right after he said that, he fed 4,000 people. So over and over, you find this compassion characterize his ministry. I mean, he cared about the physical needs of people, and he wanted to relieve their suffering. He fed them. He wanted to relieve the sorrows that they had. And so when he tells these disciples to go out and preach, he wants them likewise to have that same compassion. And that's the way a minister has to be today. When people are hurting, you have to have compassion for them. The apostle John wrote in 1 John, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And where do you think John learned that? Where did he get that kind of attitude? Well, it's one of the most basic fundamentals of his ministry training. He was on this trip, and Jesus said, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, and raise the dead. So they received a course in compassion as they were being trained because that characterized Christ and it must also characterize his ministers. But we have to take that a step further because Christ was concerned with a much greater issue than just physical well-being. Now, if you look in chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, there is a certain type of compassion that was the motivation for Jesus calling his apostles out to help in the ministry. In verse number 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. And so a minister has to be concerned more than just about the physical needs of people. He must be concerned about the spiritual care of the soul. See, a minister is called to be a shepherd. That's what pastor means. It means a shepherd. And and let me say this. If you can glibly look past the physical needs of people and ignore all of that and act like you don't see it, you could never claim that you care for their souls. But this is also as true as true can be that the physical needs of people do not touch the importance of their spiritual needs. Jesus saw them as sheep scattered without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion because what that scripture means is that those religious leaders had ripped them to shreds. Those religious leaders cared nothing at all about the people. They left them destitute, devastated by that works religion that they had been preaching. They cared nothing at all for their souls. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, just a few pages over to the 16th chapter. And, of course, we're going straight through Matthew, and we're going to come to this later. I don't know how long it will be, maybe a year or two. 
We'll come to the 16th chapter, but we'll see the same principle over and over again. And, and here is where we find what Jesus says about the value of the soul. And there are a few different ways that we can approach this scripture, but I just want to draw out a small part of this for the point that we're discussing today. I want you to see what Jesus says beginning at verse number 24. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, one of the things that the Scriptures teach there, among many other things it teaches, we would have to see that certainly what Jesus is telling us is that the soul is the most important, important part of man. Now, I'm of the opinion that when Jesus speaks here about the soul, that he means the same thing as man's spirit. And if you're keeping tabs on this, that makes me a dichotomist instead of a trichotomist. Soul and the spirit are the most important part of man because that's the part that lives forever. Now, the body dies. The soul lives forever. The flesh of man decays. It goes away. And despite the fact that the Bible does say that at one time in the resurrection, in in the future, God is going to raise the body, yet it's not the flesh that's going to be raised. As Paul said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you take that and you compare it to Matthew 16, and what Jesus is teaching is that everything that's gained in this life is inconsequential compared to the state of your soul. And he says, if, you, if, you, if your soul does not prosper, you have not gained anything of any lasting value. And so Jesus told the disciples to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that when you stand before God in judgment, he's not going to say to you, impress me with your bank account. And he's not going to say, let me see how many sports trophies that you have. And he's not going to say, what about that academic degree that you hang on the wall? Show me that. And when that day, he's going to look back on all of that. You're going to look back on all of that if you don't know him. And you're going to say, what would I give in exchange for my soul? In other words, what would I give in order that I might enter into eternal life. What would I give to make sure that my soul is safe with God? And you'll look over that burning cauldron of fire, and your answer is going to be, I would trade it all. I'd trade everything. I'd give up everything I ever gained in life just to be able to be safe with God. Now, you see, the minister starts out with that information already in his hand. And so he sees the plight of poverty. He sees people that are hurting or in poor health. And even though he sees family problems and financial problems, he knows that that pales in comparison. There is no comparison to the value of the soul. And every person has to have their eyes open to that truth. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we would gladly take all of the suffering and all the persecution, all of the heartache, If we could exchange that for the soul. Why? Because the soul lives forever. Scripture says this body and this life, it's all going to pass away. It appears as a vapor for a little while and then it vanishes away. Like steam that comes up out of a tea kettle. You see it for a little while and then it's gone. And there are many tremendous truths that can be brought out of these verses. But 
For now, I want you to see that everything that takes place here in this training session is colored by that statement. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the minister's care for the souls of people is in relation to the fear of the rejection of the gospel. And verse number 15 teaches that if they hear the gospel and they refuse it, then the condemnation will be greater than ever imaginable, far worse than any physical pains that a person might go through. And I would submit to you that a minister that has no compassion for people that are dying and on their way to hell is no real minister of the gospel. If he doesn't preach to people about deliverance from sin, if he doesn't tell them that they're sinners and they have to repent and come to Christ in faith, then he is no real minister of Christ. Well, just a few days ago, I was speaking to one of uh, the members as they were going out of the, of, the, of the door. And I was talking to this person, and, and, and she was talking about a family member that attends a different church. And she said, they teach the social gospel, and they don't know anything at all about repentance from sin. And I know that church. It's a church that gets involved in community activities. It's a church that's there for neighborhood cleanups. It's a church that's there for protests when there's one about messing up the environment. It's a church that would fight the casino. It's a church that says, no way, we're going to have a Hooters in Roner Park. This is a church that says, we need to help the homeless, and we need to provide daycare centers, and we need to take senior citizens for outings. And all of those things are fine in one way or another. But a church that misses the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and one that does not direct people to repentance from their sins and faith in Jesus Christ is a church without a real Christian ministry. You see, I can find a thousand philanthropists. I can find people that will do any one or combination or all of those things that I've just mentioned. But they're not Christian. They don't make any claims for Christ, and they have no interest in Christ. They do a lot of good things for sure, But why do we need another church that does the same things? Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, even raise the dead? That that only speaks to the temporal needs of people. That's for the flesh. And maybe we have to have those things, but we must have compassion for people's souls. Now let me show you what's more important, just in case you haven't gotten that yet. Jesus gave the apostles power. And the greatest power that he gave them was not healing. It wasn't casting out devils, and it wasn't raising the physically dead. The greatest power that he gave them was the power of the gospel. It was the power to raise spiritually dead people into spiritual life. And that wasn't in their power to do it any more than healing somebody was in their power. That power comes through the Holy Spirit. That power is the gospel wielded in the hands of the Holy Spirit. So here's that commission for for a pastor and for a preacher of the gospel he must have that that compassion he has the commission and the compassion and he's not going to have one without the other god doesn't give one without the other and so he has compassion for people's physical needs but the greatest need is the welfare of the soul and this church is a place of love you know i've heard countless times that people say you know i can really feel the love in berean baptist church And that's because our people do care for one another. We're interested in what happens to other people. That's compassion. But this church has to be a place where repentance and faith is preached. 
This has to be a church where we talk to people about the eternal destiny of their souls and what happens if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. We have to be a church that warns people that judgment is coming, that the kingdom of God is at hand. We're all going to stand before God in the judgment. And so it's a place where we have to have compassion for the soul because the simple truth of the matter is there is nothing that's more important than your soul. And so what we will do here, we'll preach with compassion, but our passion is the souls of people. Our passion is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our passion is that we won't see people die and go to hell. And that's what Jesus was most concerned with. And that's why he trained these men. He gave them the power to heal people because that verified all of their claims. But he said, that's not the most important thing. I don't want you to concentrate on that altogether. You go out there and you preach the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judgment is coming. And every person is going to stand before God. And we have to have the compassion for people to tell them that. Repent of your sins. Trust Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing as valuable as your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the message that's given here to us. How important that it is that we make people aware of this. That you're coming with judgment. Everybody's going to stand before you. And we're going to give account of our lives and... We need to know that our souls are safe. Lord, help us to preach to people that there is a real hell, that there's a real judgment that's coming, and, Lord, they need to trust you as Savior. Would you put that in the heart of someone today to understand that gospel message? And may that be the passion of every single person in this room. Whether we're called to be preachers or not, we know that we've been called to give this message to people to let them know that they need to be saved. So, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to have that compassion that you would have us to have for their souls. Bless our people. Bring someone to Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's.